Welcome to episode 165 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the nighttime sky. And this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. So Shane, this episode we, we've chatted about, you've, you've uh, kindly agreed to help collaborate on this one. Um, back in, uh, in early autumn, we did uh, episode 155 on autumn observing. Um, and since then, I've been teaching my astronomy class and was, was asked uh, by a few members of that class for uh, some of the material that uh, we've gone over um, during, uh, during the past uh, month. And I thought that uh, maybe we could do it as a podcast. You kindly agreed. So thank you. Yeah, I'm excited for it. Yeah, and so there might be a little bit of overlap between episode 155 and and this episode. Um, however, we also received a lot of positive feedback from that episode, and we're going to take a slightly different uh, approach today. And one of the things um, that I I really enjoy about teaching astronomy classes is um, I get uh, sort of immediate interaction and feedback from uh, participants in the class, and that always helps to improve and make things better. However, <laughs> one thing that I'm a little bit, um, I guess, reluctant to do is to simply just send out my presentation or the presentation that, that, that I'm using for the class, because uh, most of the time the slides are simply um, to prompt like those conversations or, or to prompt the lecturer, which is me in this case. And so there's, there's not the detail. I think that people are maybe expecting to be like in slide notes. For example, my slides have, have very few notes to them. Uh, mostly I'm just, I know what I'm going to say. And the slides are simply a way of keeping me on track. Um, so I kind of feel like it loses some context. And then if I just record them, there, there's no interaction either. And uh, it's just kind of me sitting in a room recording it. And that's not great. But I think doing it as a podcast with you, Shane, I, th I think it provides somebody else to provide their input in conversation. And I think that makes it a little bit more interesting and engaging. Um, and then as well, um, if I simply just bundle it up and send it out to, to the class, I know that there's those three people who are going to listen to it. Maybe there's, there's another person or two who will. Um, but it's a, it's a fair bit of work to put in for uh, um, for a small audience, and then I'm thinking, well, gee, we can put it out on our feed, and then uh, you know maybe uh, five or six hundred people will listen to it over the next month, so um, and and get something out of it as well. So, but they, yeah, without further, I think it'll be good. Yeah, yeah. So again, if if I can get my slides uh, to advance, so the class, uh, Shane, it's called understanding. Uh, the autumn sky. And so I'm, I'm doing a few things in this class. One um, uh, primary thing is, is to help people that have never really done astronomy before, visual astronomy before looking up at the stars, um, or people that have just started, or maybe they've been tinkering around with it their whole lives, um, really kind of start to uh, uh, you know, help them out, help, help them kind of get to, to that next level. So some folks in the class have, have never, or, or hardly ever gone out with a star map under the stars. And some people um, are going out every month with a map and, and uh, a telescope that maybe they had received as a gift or bought a few years ago. 
um, and just kind of looking to, to get a little more out of it. So one of the things, um, the other things that I do in, in the class is go over some of the autumn constellations. So uh, on the screen here, I'm sharing just those central uh, autumn constellations. We're going to go over some of those um, in this podcast, but um, at least in my mind, anyway, I don't know what you think. I always think of Pegasus as that central um grouping of stars, the square of Pegasus is kind of that sort of uh, grand central station for branching out into the autumn night sky. I'm not sure um, if you agree with that or not. So maybe I'll just, just uh, get your feedback. Yeah, for sure. For sure. The square of Pegasus becomes a, you know, a very dominant thing in the fall sky. Um, the other thing that sort of notifies me of the fall is, is, uh, you know, Perseus rising as well. Um, mm -hmm. you know, with Andromeda, um, you know, that's another sort of signifier for me and something that I, I always enjoy seeing in the fall. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, Perseus is, is connected to, by, to the great square of Pegasus by the constellation of Andromeda, which is where the Andromeda galaxy, um, it's and, and there, it's kind of read, read sort of between the two, and then just above it is uh, Cassiopeia, and those those constellations are actually fairly easy to to identify. And then, of course, we have the the Milky Way cutting um, from from west to east uh, and going right overhead, and the Summer Triangle still hanging out pretty high in the sky. So so there's there's lots to see, and then we have this um, sort of the, the, this group of of fainter kind of like the the lesser known. Um, constellations of autumn. Um, I guess Aquarius would, would be a more um, well-known constellation, but the pattern certainly isn't. It kind of looks like, um, you know, two, uh, two kind of badly drawn arms with hands and then uh, has sort of this, this unique um, kind of tripod feature in the middle. And then we have Pisces Austrinus, um, which has a bright star in it. And then uh, Pisces the fish, we have Aries, and we have uh, Cetus, then we have some smaller or lesser known constellations like Delphinus, uh, the dolphin, and then um, Camelopardalus, um, which, uh, yeah, which is the northern giraffe, of course. So we'll get into some of these. But first, um, I thought maybe what we would do is, and this would sort of be a refresher. I think we've talked about some of this before. Um, on the podcast, but it's certainly been uh, quite some time, maybe even over a year, about the star names, letters, and uh, deep sky numbering schemes. How does how does that sound? Yeah, yeah, I like it. All right, good stuff. So, a lot of this uh, astronomy stuff begins uh, way back in the Babylonian Empire, back in like the you know thousand uh, BC or so, kind of kind of give or take, maybe even uh, quite a bit longer than that. Um, and what was happening in Babylonia? So first of all, do you know where Babylonia is? I'm sure you know where it is right off the top. Yeah, well, in the, <laughs> in the Middle East there, um, kind of between um, Iraq and Iran, I believe. Yeah, it's sort of in that that general um, area. And I guess like the, the central part would have been, my understanding is in southern uh, Iraq. That was kind of like the main uh, uh part uh, of, of the Babylonian uh, Empire um, which I, which I believe is is uh, you know on the on the shores of the Euphrates River and near the Tigris River um, and those kind of things uh, and and you know I don't really know um, too much about what the climate was like but part of me thinks that maybe it was 
um, wetter and, uh, you know, not quite as arid as, as it is um, today, for some reason. That, that's sort of the impression I got when I was reading, when I was doing history. I studied the history of, of this region. It's pretty, pretty fascinating. And, uh, you know, um, you know, from, from all accounts, I would love to see it one day. It looks like a, an extremely beautiful uh, area, even today, down into to the Persian Persian Gulf region. Um, but in that, in that area, they have found these um, clay, they kind of look like clay tablets. Um, I think they were actually cylinders. And they contain um, early uh, depictions of star patterns and sky lore. Uh, on them. And they're, they're among the first uh, texts. They go back, um, like I said, well into uh, that, that realm of a thousand or so uh, BC, at least the observations do. The observations might even go back uh, sometime before that. Of course, uh, even going back further than that, we talk about things like uh, some of the cave paintings um, and some uh, of the uh, indigenous um, paintings uh, all over the world. Um, you know, that, that have existed um, and have depicted uh, quite clearly uh, celestial star patterns and, and events. But the clay tablets from uh, Babylonian times, they're sort of the first written depictions that have been able uh, to have been located so far um, to detail out uh, what, what's going on in, in the night sky as far as uh, star patterns go. And then, um, you know, coming up into sort of the, the early BCs and, and low ADs, we have uh, Greek myths uh, being introduced uh, to those star patterns just to the north of Babylonian in the uh, Aegean Sea area, and Greek and uh, uh, Greece and, and other areas um, in the Aegean, Macedonia. Um, uh, you know, we have Greek myths that are starting to be applied to the Babylonian uh, star patterns. Uh, you have things like the, the copy of the Phrenese Atlas, which is in Florence. Um, you have Hipparchus who made his observations. And then you have uh, Ptolemy. And he wrote a book uh, called The Almagest, which was based on Hipparchus's uh, observations. And I, I think that was published around like the second century uh, AD even, and, and still widely available um, today. But what was interesting about um, the, the Greek myths and the Babylonian star patterns is that if they were talking about uh, a star like Betelgeuse, so, you know, the, these, these stars didn't have actual names applied to them. So in Ptolemy's Almagest, and I'm not sure if you knew the shame, but he would actually refer to the bright star that we know now as Betelgeuse um, as the red star on the right shoulder of Orion. So they wouldn't actually have star names. Now imagine, imagine taking out your star chart and seeing the description written out in a long hand like that. How, how would that be for you? <laughs> well, you know, I guess, I guess uh, it would make it a lot more challenging to learn the night sky because, well, at least in my mind, it would, you know, I, I, you know, reference things by names or, you know, especially in astronomy by like, you know, the uh, catalog uh, identifier, which, you know, could be like M31 or NGC332, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Do you know many of the, do you, do you know much about the Greek myths or anything like that? 
Uh, I've never really studied them. I have read them in the past. So, uh, you know, enough to be dangerous. <laughs> they, t- for whatever reason, I, I enjoy like hearing about them. Like in particular, I know that some of our um, national park staff and other folks um, have, have gone and learned them all and gotten into them. And I know there's a, there's a person who's taken my class now who, uh, who, who, who has studied like Greek uh, mythology and that sort of uh, information. Um, but for me, like they don't stick. Like I can, I can draw you out of Ryan. I can find like hundreds of deep sky objects and I can tell you, you know, if, if a star is out of order or find a faint comet or asteroid, but I, I can't, I can't sort of relay the myths. I know that Orion and the scorpion sort of are on opposite ends of the sky for some sort of reason. And that, you know, Andromeda is the chain lady and stuff like that. But um, yeah, the, the Greek myths don't really stick in, in my mind because um, you know, I, I just think it's sort of some, some of those patterns and some of the myths um don't necessarily fit too well together or sometimes when they do have a pattern that fits well um, with the myth, sometimes the myth is, is a fairly obscure one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So when we're out under the stars and one thing I thought this was sort of something I thought might be a barrier to learning astronomy is that I, I thought you kind of had to learn those myths maybe a little bit better than what you need to. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I think it's, if you know, the Greek myths, it probably makes the constellations potentially more interesting because it retells some of these stories, um, Mm -hmm. but certainly not required. No. One thing that is cool is that uh, a lot of different, um, a lot of different uh, cultures around the world um, have had their own um, stories associated Mm -hmm. with uh, the same star patterns. Um, so, you know, maybe, uh, you know, that, that is one thing that I've sort of found pretty interesting is here about, um, some of the Chinese lore around some of the stars, um, some of the, uh, indigenous Cree lore. I've been fortunate to, to go with the uh, Cree astronomers and, and hear some of this, um, and, and where I'm from, uh, some of the Mi'kmaq lore through, uh, through, through some of my friends back there that have, that have worked, um, you know, in, in those uh, interpretive uh, circles, which, which is pretty cool. So, um, you know, it's sort of something that was keeping in one's mind that just because these are sort of, you know, in a way like the dominant pattern, there are other, other patterns and other um, sky stories associated uh, with, with all, all of these stars as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, agreed. I, I am fascinated, um, especially like when a number of these, um, constellations have the same meaning across different cultures, across very different timelines in history. Uh, I think that's pretty cool. And, you know, one of the, if I could go back in time and meet one astronomer, it would probably be Al Sufi, who was a Persian astronomer. And what was really neat about what the Persian astronomers did with, with these star names is they, well, they did two things. They gave many of the stars, their names. So prior to the Persian astronomers, you know, you kind of, you know, in a way you can kind of like start sailing your, your boat around this region of the world. And you, you have, um, you know, the Babylonians who had the early texts and then you had the Greeks who were applying their myths. And then you have the Persians who were, um, who really were putting in, in many ways, the fundamental building blocks of what would become the science of astronomy, which is really cool because, up to that point, 
there was um, recognition of the stars and patterns, and there was some geometry that was being applied um, practically, you know, to to start making use of the stars. Um, you know, of course, in the agricultural uh, business going back uh, for millennia. But um, when al-Sufi and the Persian astronomers sort of, you know, took the lead in this, they began to give the stars their specific names. um, And that provided um, more accuracy so that we know exactly what star we're talking about when we say the right star on Orion's shoulder. Because if if you're looking at Orion, um, well, is it is it the right shoulder from your perspective or from the perspective of the constellation? Mm -hmm. So there could be some confusion. And so they sorted that out. And then the other thing they did is, is for the most part up to that point, the stars were written um, on paper um, reversed because just like how we represent places on a map in a way reversed because we, we position them as if we're in a position overhead looking down on the earth and then we all can look at those maps and interpret them. Well, th- there's nothing that says that's how we have to interpret things. That's just the dominant way that things were written on maps and, and not every culture um, did that, you know, other, other cultures had like wayfinding. I went to a wayfinding um, lecture when I was, when I was in Hawaii on, on how, um, you know, those, those peoples navigated the world, which um, in some ways had, uh, has a greater benefit when you're just on an open flat ocean, you know, there's, there's different ways you have to navigate because there's, there's nothing really to draw things, things out. It doesn't matter. It's all just going to be one big ocean, but there's ways that you can navigate based on currents and birds and other things that you're seeing, like weather patterns and that sort of thing. It's more of a, of a, uh, of an active interpretation of where you are versus just like drawing something on a map. So, um, but what the Persians did is they, they correctly oriented the stars and that actually makes the night sky more readable and uh and visible for for all of us you know to look at so previously what the what the the map makers were doing is they were just extending out from the earth one level further and then drawing the stars as if you were standing outside of a sphere of stars and kind of looking down upon that just like we look down upon the earth Um, but of course when when you do that that makes things uh very, very difficult and confusing. So, so the Persian astronomers gave the stars their names and correctly oriented them. So that's how we end up with star patterns. We originally got the star patterns from the Babylonians for the most part, and they end up getting Greek myths applied to them. And then uh, they, ha- they are further annotated with the Arabic uh, star names. So that's kind of why we have it set up the way that we do. And like we talked about, not all cultures, um, did it the exact same way. Um, for example, in uh, in Australia, some of the indigenous cultures they they traced out um, the dark patterns in the sky to get like uh, the dark emu and that sort of thing. But that that's pretty cool that that some of the cultures didn't trace out the star patterns. They traced out like the Milky Way galaxy itself, which is super neat. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that. Um, the the neat thing, you know, and, and everybody can relate to this is. We have the established constellations that a lot of people are familiar with, you know, the the uh, Ursa Major, Cassiopeia, Orion, but it's just neat to look up at the sky and, and sometimes make patterns for yourself or see what other uh, sort of outlines of things that, you know, become apparent to you. And, and sometimes that's maybe just within 
the Milky Way glow, or sometimes that is, you know, stars that are, are quite bright in the sky. But, um, you know, I, I think at a very sort of raw level, it's just a neat thing to do because, you know, throughout the history of humanity, um, we've done that, right? We've looked up yep. at the night sky and we've seen things and, uh, you know, try to um, relate that to, I think, our everyday lives. And one thing other cultures um, have done, done quite well that, that we've lost, and I think it's been a detriment to learning the night sky, is that by focusing so much on having these static star patterns, um, it can be difficult to kind of join the constellations together. So, for example, um, one of the earliest paper star, chat, star charts comes to us from China, and my, my understanding is, and, and I, I haven't really studied this, but I've read some about it and I've heard some interpretive talks, is that in China, they would break apart the constellations that, that we see anyway, and they would have sort of sub-constellations telling a story um, as a grouping. And then maybe there would be like a larger pattern that would sort of emerge out of that grouping. Um, and to me, that sounds like an easier way of learning the night sky and joining the constellations together is something we do. So, for example, when we look and we talk about the great square of Pegasus, well, technically the star in the, our top left or to the northeast is in the constellation of Andromeda. And that's kind of where it joins together. And it's easier to kind of branch out into Andromeda and from there into Perseus. Um and that's sort of how you find the Andromeda galaxy by going through that process. Um, but sort of technically speaking, that star isn't in Perseus. So you probably shouldn't be calling it that, you know, I mean, it, it just would make, it makes it more difficult to learn when we start getting so fixated on which stars are, are in which constellations sometimes for our purposes, we're just simply learning the nighttime sky. Yeah, for sure. So um, Bayer and Flamsteed. So, so these, these two guys, they look like magistrates. Um, Bayer was a lawyer, Flamsteed, and, and he came along with these uh, Greek letters and uh, a numbering scheme using, um, you know, Greek and then Roman letters. They're kind of doing the same thing for the COVID-19 virus, I think. And then sort of uh, in, in a strange twist, I think they're going to start naming the, uh, did I hear this right? They're going to start naming the virus now because they're, they're going to run out of um, the, the letters uh, the Greek letters, so they're going to start start naming it after constellations or something like that. So really? <laughs> I thought that was really strange. Uh, if we keep keep having variants, so um, they're they're following along this pattern, which I find quite bizarre. I kind of wish that they wouldn't use the constellations. I kind of wish they had gone to the Roman letters after the Greek letters, just like we did in astronomy. And then maybe start looking at uh, at the constellations because I don't know. Do you want Orion? Oh my God, they caught Orion, and now they're really. Sad. I mean, that seems really strange to me. But anyway, I I wouldn't have have done that and kind of annoyed that they've kind of ventured in into that track because I think sometimes it's the pseudo it's the pseudoscience, and then maybe um, you know some of the challenges with how things are being handled. That, that can lead to it because it makes it sound like there is some sort of maybe astronomy and then people are quick to jump to astrology from astronomy connection to maybe why there's a virus in the first place. And well, I don't think it's very helpful to, to go in that direction personally. That's just my personal feeling. Fair enough. 
So, so they they plotted out these um, letters and and Roman letters and, and Greek characters: alpha, beta, gamma, delta, eta, data. The, the list goes on and on. Um, and what Bayer did is he put them together into this chart called Urinometria, which came out in the early 1600s. And it was this beautiful chart, and it had uh, depictions of the Greek mythological uh, star patterns. And then it also had the um, it also had the um, the letters um, associated with it, like uh, you know, for the most part, like a bright um, star in in Orion would be Alpha uh, Orionis, and a bright star in uh, in Perseus would be Alpha Persia. It also be called uh, Murfac. Um, in the uh, w- with the Arabic names, you have your proper names, and then you also have, you know, your your Greek uh, and Roman uh, letters. So, so anyway, that's why we have uh, those up in the sky as well. And then you kind of referred to the numbering schemes, and uh, we actually have a variety of numbering schemes for for the stars as well. So it kind of gets a little bit confusing. So a star might have a proper name; it might have a letter associated with it. And then um, for de- and and then it might also have a series of numbers because it might be in a catalog. But then we also have the deep sky objects. So, Shane, what are some of the deep sky objects that we have? We've talked about the star patterns. We've talked about some of the stars, but we have kind of a few different categories of deep sky objects. What would those be? I guess at the highest level, it would be galaxies, nebulas, and clusters. And then there's subcategories under all of those. Um, yeah, exactly. you know, with, with galaxies, like a lot of the subcategories, I think are fairly descriptive of the shape, you know, that we see from our perspective in the, in the universe. Um, and then with nebula, you know, I think it's usually boiled down to emission, reflection and dark nebula. Uh, and then with clusters, it's open clusters, which can take on, you know, a, any sort of random appearance and then globulars, which are typically, you know, very condensed balls of stars. Yeah. So there's, there's the globular and the, and the open cluster. So what, what do globular and open clusters look like through the eyepiece that's different? Well, again, the, the globulars, um, I, I believe the origin of the name is that they kind of look like a globe of stars, like a, a ball of, of stars, um, usually with a very dense, bright nucleus. Um, and then, you know, you can start to make out some individual stars on the periphery. Um, whereas an open cluster um, is, uh, well, and I should say globulars are usually the oldest stars that are in that particular galaxy. Uh, open clusters are usually younger stars. Um, they are, you know, gravitationally impacting each other, um, and they can take on any number of appearances. Um, they're very, you know, loosely scattered stars, but they are part of a system. Yeah, yeah, very good. And they they do look quite different through the telescope. The globulars look like kind of like a heap of sugar or salt on um, black velvet, as they say, or black paper, and then the. Uh, open clusters look more like a scattering of stars that are sort of, you know, coming out of a common point of origin and then kind of breaking apart as they go around the Milky Way, whereas the globulars are just going to stay uh, tightly uh, confined together. Then we have some uh, some nebula as well. So uh, tell us about nebula, Shane. <laughs> yeah, I think the most common ones that 
amateur astronomers observe are usually um, like emission or reflection nebula because there's light coming from these nebula. Um, and uh, uh, I'm trying to think here. I think emission nebula is usually star birth regions. And I think reflection nebula is often like um, supernova remnants. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong there, but um, I think that's... Uh, you know, the general rule. Um, and anyway, there's light that is visible and, and really the way I describe it when I'm talking to people, you know, at a public observing event is that they look like clouds in space, um, and they're lit up. Um, now in photographs, they often take on really beautiful colors, you know, purples, pinks, uh, blues. Um, but through the eyepiece, typically all you're going to see is gray. Now, if you have sensitive eyes, you know, good eyes, and you maybe have some good aperture or a really good telescope, you may be able to tease out a little bit of color out of a nebula, maybe greens, uh, is the most commonly reported. Um, but then the, the third category of nebula, which is probably less, uh, less intentionally observed, but I think a lot of people actually do observe a lot of dark nebula. And so what did, well, we probably should have started it off saying nebula is just gas in space. So dark nebula is gas, but it's not lit up. Like there's no light that make it visible. So when you're observing dark nebula, you're, you're observing the absence of light, which is really weird. So where, where dark nebula often stands out is in uh, star rich fields. You know, you'll have stars everywhere. And then all of a sudden a spot that's blocked out. And that is likely dark nebula that is blocking the starlight from reaching, you know, earth essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds pretty good. And, uh, and we have, we have our galaxies and like you were saying, we have all these different types of galaxies, like spiral galaxies and elliptical galaxies, lenticulars. And seems like there's a galaxy for, for just about every day of the week, almost kind of thing. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. The, the ones of most interest to me are the peculiar galaxies because they're just, they don't really take on like a standard shape. They're almost like kind of the open clusters of galaxies. Mm, very peculiar, aren't they? <laughs> yes. Good stuff. Now these all have names. There's, there's a couple different uh, different letter naming schemes that that we see, but one of the most popular ones is M, listed before uh, a set of uh, one, two, or three numbers. What are the what does the M mean when it comes to these deep sky objects like nebulous star clusters and galaxies? Yeah, that denotes the Messier catalog. So Charles Messier was uh, an observer that um, was searching for comets and he would just scan the night sky looking for fuzzy things. And, and if he found a fuzzy thing, he would observe it over multiple nights to see if it moved against the background stars. Mm -hmm. uh, if it moved, then he would discover a comet. And I think uh, through his lifetime, he did discover multiples. I want to say it was like eight or nine, but maybe it was more than that. I can't remember. Um, but anyway, what Messier became probably more famous for was his not comets. Um, so if one of these fuzzy objects stayed static and it did not move against the field of stars, then it was not a comet. But what, you know, it turned out to be was, you know, various types of bright uh, deep sky objects. And it's now affectionately known as the Messier observing list, 110 objects right now. Yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah, there's like 110 plus plus or minus, depending on how one uh, how one interprets it. But uh, yeah. then going going from there, and of course, some of the deep sky objects were found uh, before Messier, 
Um, some of them go back to uh, pre prehistory times because uh, some of these things are are visible, like the beehive cluster, uh, which is cataloged as M44, and and the Pleiades cluster, which is M45, are you know particularly like the Pleiades is quite bright, easy to uh, easy to see. I mean, uh, any person looking up um, over the past thousand, several thousand years would have noticed those, um, but. Uh, but when Messier came along, he was kind of like among the first people to to kind of place them all in into a list uh, together. Then we have the uh, the NGC, the new the new general catalog, which was uh, a collaborative effort between William Herschel, his sister Carolyn, and uh, and William's son John. And uh, what they did is is they used uh, large and small instruments, uh, William and Carolyn in, uh, in England, and they discovered, um, I think the first uh, 2,500 or close to 3,000 uh, deep sky objects, many of them galaxies, um, using uh, a variety of instruments that, uh, that they built on their own. And then uh, John Herschel eventually went down to, uh, to the Cape of Good, Good Hope and, uh, and observed down there for, for a handful of years and, uh, and sort of took care of the, the Southern hemisphere. And then these were all brought together by a JLE uh, dryer. And he, he put them all together into a catalog and kind of sorted them out. Um, but the way, the way that Carolyn and, and William would, uh, would observe is that uh, William would be uh, at the telescope and Carolyn would be um, working as, as note taker, and then on nights when uh, William wasn't available, she actually had her own smaller wider field instrument um, that she would use to, to make her own um, discoveries and, uh, and then help to guide John um, in his observation things through, through, through some written correspondence and then asked him to kind of recheck some stuff. But I think all, all together, they, they observed like, or discovered something like um, 78,000 or 7,800 objects, close to 8,000 objects. Um, which end up getting cataloged as the new general catalog, and those are the the numbered objects, and the messy objects are are in and amongst those as well. Um, everything that was seen in the deep sky up to that point, both the uh, the uh, Herschel's uh, observations and those who came before them, were all sort of cataloged together in this this new general catalog. So pre- pretty tough to go and see all those, eh, Shane? Yeah, yeah, very tough, and and. In, in my opinion, it's one of the more incredible feats in, a, in a, well, in visual astronomy uh, to catalog and, and, you know, discover all of those objects is, is just absolutely amazing. Yeah. I'm, st- I'm starting to think that trying to get through all these notes might've been a little bit more ambitious. <laughs> yes. I think we're, we're starting to get to, to about the, the end of our, of our episode length as we like to run them. And maybe what we can do is in uh, in a couple of weeks, maybe we can we can pick up and uh, and resume our our tour of the of the autumn sky, and uh, and talk uh, about some uh, constellations. How how does that sound? Maybe we'll just sort of keep this one um, to this length, and I think it's a pretty good spot to take a break. Um, but uh, maybe maybe you have some other thoughts on kind of the the sort of basis of star catalogs and numbers in the sky? Not a lot. I, I think this will serve as just a, a nice, uh, you know, history podcast, I guess, you know, the, how a lot of this stuff came to be. 
Um, the uh, the thing of interest to me is is that I, I guess there's just so many um, different lists out there or catalogs, I should say, and then out of the catalogs derives usually a lot of different lists. So you know, for people that are looking for you know observing projects or different things to look at in the night sky. Uh, just be aware that there is a whole bunch of different, again, catalogs and lists to help guide you. Uh, the ones we talked about today being the Messier list uh, and then the NGC catalog are probably two of the most popular ones out there and will provide a lifetime of observing, especially the NGC list. Um, but there are many, many other uh, things to guide you. And uh, some of them are, are very interesting. Yeah. I mean, and and there's other ones that kind of sort of been a bit uh have, have sort of con- gone gone back through like some of the um colander objects um which i think was was uh, a list of extremely large open clusters um which was derived in i think like the 1960s there's the trumpler catalog there's other catalogs which have come along uh since uh, many of those objects aren't really um discoveries so much as um uh, groupings of stars and different patterns that it turned out were actually related to one another. So they, they were observed, um, you know, for a long time, like the grouping in, in and around Alpha Persei or, or Murfak was discovered uh, to be um, a, a, a very large open cluster of stars just close by. Um, but of course, most of those stars are visible uh, to your eye without a telescope. And, and they were, they were sort of seen as as a grouping, um, at least going back to to as early as like the 1600s, and and probably before anybody who looked up would have noticed that that grouping of of stars together in the sky. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So yeah, there's there's lots of lots of different things uh, to to look up uh, and and enjoy, uh, regardless of of all the numbers. But it can be a little bit daunting and confusing for newcomers when they get um, even a basic star chart like the one that I uh, send out to, to the class and they start to see the star names and then some M and NGC and dotted lines and circles and all that. So typically the galaxies are drawn with sort of this uh, hard oval edge and the clusters are often drawn with as a circle that's dotted um, or sometimes if, if it's big enough that they'll actually dry in the stars themselves. So th- there's not really consistency across the board in any of those. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah. So with that, Shane, though, I think maybe uh, unless you have anything else to add, maybe we'll uh, we'll stop there and then uh, we'll just kind of resume in, uh, I guess it'll probably be a few weeks for those listening because next week we'll do our what's up in the October night sky. And then maybe the following week we'll, we'll record um, some more information uh, that, that I'm gleaming from my course and turning into some podcasts for those that haven't been able to make a few of the classes. Yeah, that sounds great, Chris. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining and thanks so much for everybody for listening to us. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>